0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: All this week, we've been bringing you conversations about myths and legends, and we couldn't possibly do that without featuring Kate Forsyth. Kate's been on this program several times now. She's a novelist, the author of several best-selling works of fiction, and many of those are modern retellings of very old folk stories and fairy tales. These are the stories that many of us grow up with and then pass on to our own kids, fantastical tales of magical transformations, of harrowing ordeals with equal measures of beauty, filth and violence. Kate Forsyth was initiated into the world of such stories when she was a child. She absorbed them while she spent long months in hospital after she was mauled by a dog when she was little. Reading these weird folk tales allowed Kate's mind and imagination to travel far beyond her hospital bed. I spoke with Kate in 2017 about some of the true stories behind the fairy tales that we've grown up with. Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Little Red Riding Hood and the Chinese tale of Tam Lin. Hello, Kate. Welcome back.
0: Thank you so much for having me back again.
1: Last time on the program, you mentioned in passing that the story of Cinderella that we all know so well actually originated in China, where the story was once called Yes, Shen. Tell me that story. How's the Chinese told it back then?
0: Oh, look, it is so fascinating, isn't it? This story that, that we think of as being one of the quintessential fairy tales of the Western tradition actually has its roots in China. It's a very, very old story. It was first recorded in China um, in the 5th century which which makes it you know 1500 years old
1: wow it's it's so it, it's like right so that's right at the end of the ancient world isn't i it?
0: know it's and it, you know right at the very beginning of stories first being written down um, it's quite a beautiful story it's about a, a girl whose mother is dead who has a cruel stepmother, and has cruel stepsisters, and they keep her working in the dirt, they keep her dressed in rags. She's lonely, she's worked hard, she has no one on her side. But she has... Um, a friend, a fish, a golden fish in the fish pond. And she goes there and she talks to the fish and she weeps and her tears mingle with the pool. And she thinks of that fish as being like her dead mother. But the stepmother, seeing how the girl takes comfort you know, from the company of this fish, has the fish caught and kills it and cooks it and serves it up to the girl and so she is essentially cannibalising what she thinks of as being the spirit of her own mother and the girl is utterly distraught when she realises that she's eaten her friend the fish then an old travelling man comes past and he says to her do not fear the bones of the fish have great power take them, hide them use them at need and then the story continues in pretty much the way that we know it where the invitation to the party comes and the girl's not permitted to go and she goes and she weeps and then she asks for help from the bones and the bones dress her in an amazing golden gown and slippers of gold that look just like fish scales.
1: Fish scales, like like the goldfish, right? Exactly,
0: like the goldfish and she goes off to the ball and she dances and then she loses the slipper and of course her slipper is very, very small. And, you know, so when the prince comes searching for her, none of the ladies of the land have feet quite so small. All
1: right, because cause, cause tiny feet are so virtuous in China. Is that why?
0: That's exactly right. Why. When when we think about the history oh. of, of binding women's feet in China, doesn't it seem so perfect that Cinderella, this story that has this kind of fe- fetish with the smallness of a woman's foot, should come from China, a, a country where they actually maimed young women in order to get that tiny foot
1: so the the prince or his courtiers are looking for a woman with the tiniest foot then
0: and then they find yes and she you know the golden slipper will fit her foot and nobody else's and so she marries the story does go on um Past this, you know, there's problems with the bones, and the king ends up throwing the bones away so that he has a girl all to himself. Like many stories, the essential core story is not always all that there is.
1: Ha! So it doesn't end on a, and they lived happily ever after. After she marries the prince or the king, then it Chinese goes on. Chinese
0: fairy tales are often filled <laughs> with sorrow and melancholy. Right,
1: there's a tragic end, is there? <laughs> there's often a tragic end. <laughs> That's amazing. So so it appears in China then much, much earlier than it does in Europe. Yes. How does it make its way across to Europe then after that?
0: Well, what fairy tale scholars love to do is track the pattern, or, or track the movement of fairy tales. And so we can find that this fairy tale of the girl with the tiny foot travelled along the silk roads, along with the silks and the spices and the diseases. It travelled along. Marco Polo um, was famously one of the first people to penetrate into uh, China and to open up the trading routes. And he returned to Venice in 1290 and we can see from that point on let's say the early 1300s the beginnings of early Cinderella stories in the Western tradition. The first time it was written down and published was actually in the 1500s. And then most famously in the 1600s by a Neapolitan courtier called Gian Battista Basil, who we find is actually one of the earliest sources for many of the world's most famous fairy tales. So he has an early Rapunzel, he has an early Cinderella, he has an early Sleeping Beauty. Gian um, Battista Basile uh, was uh, a courtier. He wrote his stories to amuse the court. They are bawdy. They are wicked. They are often quite lewd, and they are often extremely violent. in In the way that cartoons are violent, or in the way that some American movies have that kind of slip, you know. Um, black humour and a kind of slapstick quality to them. Um, And so his story is uh, probably the first written-down Cinderella in the Western tradition.
1: Why why do you think this this story does travel. What, what is its power that makes it travels and, and, and endure for so long?
0: Well, this is what fascinates me about fairy tales is why do they endure? Um, what we find is that any unit of cultural information, n- not just fairy tales but jokes and songs and recipes, riddles, why do they travel? Why do some survive and others don't? And there are two basic reasons. One is, and the most important, is it must have some type of relevance to its audience, and not just to the audience, but to the person who tells it. Why does a teller choose to tell that story mm-hmm. and not another story? Now, the Cinderella story is a story of justice being served. It's a story of a girl who is mistreated and you know uh, who is alone and has nothing in her life, and it's her journey towards discovering what she truly wants, which is to be loved and and to have a home of her own, and to be happy and this is a universal longing it's a rare human being that doesn't long to be loved
1: how does the story change into the one we know today like mm-hmm. you mentioned a golden gown and a golden slipper made out of fish scales yes how does that turn into a, into a glass slipper
0: well the story that was told by Basile, which was um in italy in the 1500s and 1600s there's no mention of the golden slipper at all um his his heroine actually wears Uh, patterns, which uh, are overshoes with very, very high heels that um, noble women used to wear in Venice to keep their skirts from being muddied in the dirty canals and things. Um, And then the story moves to France. Uh, You know, we know that somehow the French fairy tale tellers, including Charles Perrault, uh, managed to read and Basil's stories. We don't know how because he wrote them in Neapolitan, which is a very rare dialect and was not translated into Italian or not translated into French or German until the 19th century. And so somehow they got hold of these bawdy, wicked fairy tales from Italy, somehow translated them and then they inspired a whole, oh, a whole renaissance of fairy tale telling in France. So Charles Perrault somehow read the story um, and then he rewrote it. Um, and he was the one that brought in the glass slippers and the fairy godmother and the pumpkin that turns into a coach and the mice that turn into footwear. <laughs> these are all the details that actually have helped Cinderella survive, these um, beautiful, funny motifs that now make Cinderella what they are. He invented them.
1: It's much prettier, and it's more easy to disney in this French version. It is
0: much more romantic.
1: Tick. But it lacks the kind of earthiness, like the fact that Yancher—it's the spirit mm. of her mother in, in the fish, and all that's left is, is her bones. That's that's got a kind of weird quality. It's to it, kind of got I really a wickedness like. to it, doesn't yes, it, it, it? Really does. makes
0: the stepmother so much more wicked. What's interesting is that um, in Romania, there's a version of Cinderella which um, is called Fairy White, and in that tale the girl who is mistreated by her stepmother her only friend is a cow and the cow is called fairy white and the stepmother kills a cow and serves a cow to the daughter and so we have this this motif of the cannibalization of the girl's fairy helper Um, but there's no mention of shoes and then Ashen Putul which is the Grimm Brothers' version. So the Grimm Brothers first heard Ashenputel from a very old, very poor woman who was living in a poor house in Marburg. And the story was written down in October 1810. And it's a far more uh, vivid and dark and wicked tale than the romantic story of Charles Perrault. But what's fascinating about it is that in Ashenputel, which means ash Fool Ash fool Ash fool right. The girl has golden slippers. And so we can see by that that the Grimm's old source was not the French tale. That it was an older source, that it was actually coming from China, bypassing Italy, bypassing France, because the detail of the shoe had been changed in both the Italian and French versions of the story.
1: So so you're saying that this the story of Cinderella comes sort of, it comes out of China, but into different streams and different roads exactly, arriving at different destinations.
0: Exactly what I'm saying. So it doesn't
1: arrive at one point in Europe and then get disseminated from no. there. It's coming through different silk routes into different parts of Europe.
0: Exactly. And I love the way that you say yeah. it's coming by different silk routes because that's what I like to say as well. It's following the silk roads and changing, and each new teller of it takes a part of the tale that speaks to them and remembers that part and forgets the rest. So in Romania, they remember that the girl has to eat her fairy helper. And in France, he takes the detail of the shoes and turns <laughs> it into glass slippers. Impossible, impossible shoes, but impossibly beautiful.
1: And in Italy, it gets sexy. Exactly. Yeah, right. It's- that's that's very telling, isn't it, all, all of this? but The glass slipper, though, mm. the glass slipper, that single detail that makes the whole story mm. so incredibly memorable and the French retelling mm. of the story. What's going on there? Why, what's the, What does a glass slipper mean to you?
0: Um, glass was always extremely rare, extremely expensive, and extremely fragile. And glass actually really came from Venice, just like the story did as well. You know, Venice was like the the hub of the world's trade and the hub of the world's storytelling. Many of the stories came to China and other places, Persia, Elsewhere came to Venice and then were disseminated outwards from there, and so did glass. And in the court of um, Louis the Fourteenth, you know, who is often called the Sun King, um, his court was one of ostentatious display of his wealth. And so, when we talk about, you know, the palace at Versailles and the Hall of Mirrors, which is a hall which is hung on one side with great windows of glass and on the other side with matching mirrors so the whole room seems to shimmer with light. We're looking at what glass meant to the court of the Sun King. It meant impossible wealth, impossible power, impossible beauty and so the glass slipper for Cinderella or Cinderella as she was known in the French story, it it makes her utterly exquisite utterly expensive. Perfect. Perfect and rare.
1: What about another aspect to it? Like in China, the original version, the Mm. shoe's tiny. Mm. And in the French telling, it's glass. Both shoes have an element of cruelty to them, don't they? They
0: do. There's a kind of fetishism about them isn't there and there is in the Grim story which is actually my own personal favorite this is particularly true the the Grimm story is the cruelest of them all again in all these stories it's all about how tiny the shoe is but for the step um, sisters in the Grim story Ash and puttle well when the prince comes and he tries to to put their foot into it the foot won't fit and so the, you know their mother cinderella's stepmother tells the first step sister to chop off her toes Ah! so she chops off her toes and then she squeezes it into into the little golden slipper and then the doves who had helped ash and puttle go to it to it to all there's blood in the shoe and so the prince knows that she's not right and then the second the second sister chops off her heel to jam her foot in this tiny golden slipper and again the doves go to it to woo to it to woo there's blood in the shoe this bride is not right and so that is how Cinderella or Ashen Puttle as she's done in that story is found to be the true bride because her foot she has to put her foot into a slipper that has been stained with the blood the wounding and maiming of her stepsister's feet
1: there's something in the actual process of putting on the glass slipper on Cinderella as well. In my picture in my mind, there's something about, I don't know, capturing her foot with that, but there's also the idea of the foot the, the man kneels. When he does that, he kneels mm. at her while she she remains seated and confers some dignity upon her as well in that process as he puts the glass slipper on.
0: Well, I I always kept thinking how much that poor girl her feet would have hurt by dancing on those glass I slippers know. all night. Yes. You know, it's and then you see you know the young women of today that cripple themselves wearing ridiculous shoes and you think, <laughs> can't you see? Can't you see this? in you know, how far back this fetish with the impossible shoe goes? Haven't you heard of feminism, sister? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a great cartoon of Cinderella getting into the pumpkin, you know, in in, in her beautiful dress. It's a, the kind of Disney Cinderella, and then she's saying, "Just because I like to wear pretty shoes doesn't mean I'm not a feminist." <laughs> <laughs>
1: Indeed. I want to move on to Little Red Riding Hood now. This is one of my favourite mm. stories, and it's not really ever told these days as it once was. How old does this story, how far does this story go back?
0: Kate? It is actually one of the oldest Oldest of all the tales, it's been traced back, uh, you know, a thousand years um, and much further. And this actually does originate in the Western tradition. The very first version of it was recorded in France in the medieval period. Um, but there have been references to it, you know, references to the story in older Old, you know things like sermons and and letters this is how we trace how old a story is is when people first going oh it's just like the little girl with the red you know hood that has to go into the forest i told her not to do it and so when we get a reference like that we don't know the story but it's, that's what people remember as a key motif and so we you know we're talking about the 11th century the 12th century a long long time ago
1: in its original or earlier versions mm. it's much bloodier and much crueller. bloodier. How does it unfold in these original versions?
0: Mm. The very oldest story is called The Story of Grandmother and it's the story of a young girl who um, sets off into the forest to take her, her grandmother some food and her mother warns her which path to take. There's a path of pins or the path of needles. The idea being that either path she takes is going to hurt the little girl. Mm. And then when she finally makes it to her her grandmother's cottage well the everything is dark she can't see her grandmother in her bed and the grandmother says to her oh little girl little girl there's some food waiting for you in the pantry and there's meat and there's wine and the little girl eats and drinks and then a cat walking past said only a slut would eat the flesh of her grandmother and drink the blood of her grandmother and the little girl hears this and goes oh no I've eaten the flesh of my grandmother I've drunk the blood of my grandmother who's that in the bed? And then of course the wolf Disguised in her grandmother's clothes Asks her to remove her clothes And so Little Red Riding Hood Performs a strip tease for the wolf And each step so closer and closer to the bed where the wolf is lurking in disguise. But at the very last minute in this original story, the uh, little girl says, "Oh, forgive me, grandmother. I need, I need to go to the bathroom." She uses much more direct and earthy language than this. I need
1: to take a piss or something like that. Even it?
0: earthier, right? Even yes. Oh, okay, right. Yes, and the. And the wolf says, oh, well, very well, I don't want you to run away, so tie this rope around your ankle and I will tie it around mine and then I will know how far you've gone. And so the little girl sneaks outside, ties the end of the rope, you know, undoes it from her ankle and ties it around a tree and then runs all the way home, naked, I should add, because, of course, she's taken off all her clothes by this time. And so in that way, she outwits the wolf.
1: What happens to the wolf?
0: Well, you you never really know in this story, but in later versions of the story, the punishment of the wolf becomes very, very important. In the Charles Perrault story, so the, he was the first one to actually write down this story and and retell it, the little the little girl in her in her red cape makes it to the cottage and then is you know. Seduced towards the bed by the wolf, and then she's eaten. And that's the end, end of the story. She dies. She's dead. She doesn't escape. She doesn't get
1: reborn. So the wolf isn't a wolf at all. The wolf's the devil, isn't oh. it? Isn't it? is not its not is the wolf the devil here? I mean, really, because nothing happens to the wolf in this because the devil's eternal. You can't kill the devil, can in you?
0: In the original story, which, you know, the story of Grandmother, the word for the wolf was actually the word that we would now use for werewolf. And there was this idea that the wolf was actually a creature of dark and powerful supernatural powers. A man by day and a wolf by night.
1: So a demon of a kind.
0: Yes. Or even, I, I like to think, a metaphor for the wickedness that walks around clothed in human skin.
1: Oh, that's amazing. That. Kate Forsyth. That's not the story no. of Little Red Riding Hood that my kids got.
0: Well if you remember last time we were talking about Bluebeard and I said that Bluebeard is a story that is least likely to be ever be included in a collection of fairy tales for children well Little Red Riding Hood is the other one that is very rarely chosen for children and when it is it is so cleaned up, so sanitised and the picture of the wolf is often a comic picture, not a scary and dangerous one while the original story is so full of menace, so So full of wickedness that it's almost unbearable to tell.
1: That image you painted of Wolf in the darkness, uh, just commanding her to do these things, is really chilling.
0: Grandmother, grandmother, why are your claws so big? All the better to hold you with, my dear. Grandmother, grandmother, why are your teeth so big? All the better to bite you with, my dear.
1: Is there a version where... Little Red Riding Hood kills the wolf or defeats the wolf?
0: There is a version, the um, version then told by the Grimm brothers. The Grimm brothers are normally accused of adding the darkness and the violence to the story, but in this particular case, Little Red Riding Hood was told to them by a young woman whose name was Jeanette Hassenflug, and her grandparents were French, that um, they were Huguenots who had fled. France during the religious wars and when they came to Germany uh, they brought many of their French stories with them um, and in her story, the one told by Jeanette the wolf eats a grandmother and then he eats a little girl but then the uh, huntsman is riding past or or walking past and hears the cries and he comes in and kills the wolf and slits open the belly and both the grandmother and the daughter you know, crawl out alive, which
1: seems little bit anatomically difficult, really. Indeed, because the wolf's got teeth and they've probably been masticated a bit, haven't they? Exactly.
0: So that is the story that is most often told now. In other versions of the story, oral versions of the story, the the girl cuts her way out of the wolf's belly um, and it has become a bit of a feminist fable, this idea of the girl being warned not to wander off the path of righteousness else you'll fall into danger and then, you know, the wolf, you you know, being tricked by the wolf, eaten by the wolf. A lot of modern-day retellings of Little Red Riding Hood have the girl absolutely cutting her way free and killing and, and besting the wolf, outwitting it herself. Um, and that, I think, is one of the most interesting things about um, fairy tales, how they continue to be retold. And each time a teller retells the story, they reframe it according to their own desire, their own message that they want the fairy tale to you know, to carry, and cer- certainly the symbols of Little Red Riding Hood are so powerful, so potent that we can see a TV commercial now with a beautiful young woman wearing a red kind of hoodie and setting off into the city, and you know straight away what it is. What it
1: is. Well, when I imagine Little Red Riding Hood from my my childhood, Kate, I'm, I think I think if the story is largely in black and white or very muted colours, with this this hot image of a red, mm. a blood red cape and hoods in it. What's going on with this hood? What's that about? Can You're I
0: reading? tell you that there have been thousands of words written about the possible symbolic meaning of the red hood? Uh, you know, red, of course, is a colour of passion, the colour of blood and the colour of violence. Um, a lot of people see the red hood as indicating that the girl is actually on the verge of puberty. It's It's the red of menstruation. And that this story is about the dangers of a girl growing into a woman and the many dangers that, you know, face her in the adult world.
1: To me it seems to point her out as a victim a potential victim or potential food or something like that
0: yeah it's a color of flesh
1: mm. yeah yeah that's that's what it is I don't know I don't know these things until I start talking about them with you I suppose <laughs> I don't know how unhealthy my reflections are on them well either.
0: there are there are yeah. many other you know people have talked about it's a color of sacrificial blood for example it's a color of um, of life of rebirth because essentially if the girl is eaten and then is cut out of the belly of the wolf well it's a rebirth story isn't it and so there's ah. a lot of people who hang religious meaning onto the story of Little Red Riding Hood which is not something that we would automatically think of nowadays but can I tell you in the time of Charles Perrault it was very much seen as being a religious allegory as well as a moral Warning:
1: a, a really unholy birth, though, isn't it? Out mm. of the belly of a male beast rather yeah, than sort of, think, a, of the, the know, Virgin think Mary. Yeah, I think about,
0: uh, you know, Jonah and the uh, and being yeah. born out of the belly of the whale. Yeah, true. Um, and other similar types of stories.
1: Podcast, broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations Podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Sleeping beauty this one surprises me most of all where does this originate from the tale of sleeping beauty
0: well sleeping beauty is one of my own personal favorites for a multitude of reasons one because of the beauty of the roses and the thorns and the girl asleep in her castle but also the mystery and the darkness of it this sense of cruelty of of being surrounded by these thorns Um, the very first story that is like Sleeping Beauty, is called Troilus and Zelandine. And it comes from the 12th century, again in France. It's a story of a girl who three goddesses are brought to bless her at the christening, but one of them is jealous because she didn't get as good a knife as the other two goddesses. And so she curses her to fall asleep. And they leave her in this castle, which soon is overgrown by brambles and, and briars. And then a young prince is brought to her by a magic wind called a zephyr. And then he comes in and he sees this ruined castle. And it's in this story, the castle is very dark and it isn't a pretty space at all. And the young woman lies there completely naked in this enchanted sleep, in this coma. And he's overcome with lust at the sight of this beautiful young woman lying asleep. And so he has his his wicked way with her. He rapes her. He rapes her and then he leaves her there in the castle still sleeping but uh, she has she has conceived and over time her her belly swells and then she gives birth. She gives birth to two children, a little boy and a little girl.
1: W- while still asleep?
0: While still asleep. So she's still lying there in her coma and the little boy is searching around trying to find something to, to suckle on and he finds her finger and he sucks out the flax splinter, which was the thing that that she pricked her finger upon. And as soon as the flax splinter is sucked out of her finger, Zelandine awakes and finds herself strangely and mysteriously the mother of two newborn babies.
1: And what happens then?
0: Well, in this earlier version of the story, that's the end of the story. But in Really?
1: Na- and, and, and she's and she's delighted or she's <laughs> unhappy or what?
0: I think that she's probably extremely un- extremely unhappy. Yes. You know, she finds herself naked in a ruined castle. I imagine it being cold and, you know, filled with brambles and briars that are going to, you know, tear that sweet white flesh of hers.
1: Single mum in a Single cold mum. water flat with two kids. Exactly. Right.
0: And no, you know, no one to help her right. and no idea where to go. In the later version of the story, which was again um, written down by Basil, Gian Battista Basil, our Neapolitan courtier, the boy is called Sun and the daughter is called Moon and the uh, princess in this story is called Talia. So the story is actually called Sun, Moon and Talia and the uh, father of the twins continues to visit her. And you know he looks after her in the castle, and then he he decides he wants to marry her, but he's afraid because his mother is an ogress, and so uh, he he takes the children home and he marries um, the princess, and she lives in the castle. But then once the king rides off on, on business, as kings always do, the ogress, his mother, who's terribly jealous of this beautiful young woman and her beautiful children, bribes the cook, the castle cook, to kill first the son and serve it to her, and then the little um, girl. And the thing is that the palace cook doesn't obey the ogress. He serves her up young goats and lambs instead which she eats with great relish thinking that they're her grandchildren and then she finally wants the princess Talia to also be killed and served up to her Um, but the king rides home just as they're setting alight the pyre that Talia is to be burnt on Um, and the king then saves his wife and burns his own mother
1: what do you... This is an <laughs> insane story. Uh, what is this about? I mean, from modern sensibility, this seems the wrong, 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 I wrong, know. Wrong, People wrong are story. always
0: horrified when I tell mm. them this story because, of course, we're used to the beautiful, innocent waking of the princess with a kiss. Can I tell you that the uh, story, you know, The Sleeping Beauty in the Woods by Charles Perrault is almost exactly a copy of the Basil earlier story about, you know, Sun, Moon and Talia... Even with the ending with the ogress and the, you know, the serving up of the, of the lamb in, in place of the kids. And then it was the Grim Brothers who, when they retold the story, that they dropped all the second half of the story and it was, it was them that had the lovely princess woken with a kiss. So you see, the Grim Brothers are not really so grim when we compare them to the stories that come beforehand. In the Grim Brother story, it's much more about the story of the prince and his journey. He has to, to you know, make his way through the th- uh, thorns. He finds he, he enters the sleeping castle, and there is the cook just, you know, who has fallen asleep in the kitchen. There are the women asleep at their loom. There are the men asleep at their work in the castle. Even the dogs are asleep. Even oh. the flies are asleep upon the wall. Everything is asleep and then when he kisses when he kisses the sleeping beauty, the whole world awakens. And so with this particular story, we are actually, it's being linked back in the way that the Grim Brothers love to do to much, much older stories. We're talking about Persephone locked in the underworld for six months of the the year. And when she's in the underworld in Hades, the whole world is desolate and barren. The whole world is kept in winter.
1: That's winter, isn't it? It's winter.
0: And then when Persephone awakens again when she comes back into the world of the living then the whole world is is rejuvenated everything blooms and spring and summer comes to the land once more
1: so this sounds like it's another one myth has overtaken another hijacked it almost
0: the grim brothers were always interested in linking fairy tales back to you know back to earlier myths
1: right the classical world that
0: was one of their primary interests is You know, for them, fairy tales were camouflage myth. Now, a myth is a sacred story. A myth is a story of gods and goddesses, of the making and unmaking of the world. And to link fairy tales back to these incredibly old stories which seeped in sacred meaning and symbolism, returns sacred meaning to the fairy tales. And this is one of the things that the Grimm Brothers were most interested in. They were always looking to link it back. Now. Briar Rose, which is what the story is called in the Grimm Brothers, is clearly a story from the French tradition. But Wilhelm Grimm argued that because its motifs linked back to earlier stories, such as Persephone, and he was most concerned with Norse myth, Germanic myths. Mm-hmm. And so there's a story of um, Brünnhilde and Siegfried, which is a classic, classic story from the Norse Tradition. You know, Brunhild was kept uh, captive in a castle and she was guarded by flames. And, you know, Siegfried, uh, the classic hero of Norse mythology, he had to fight his way through the flames before he could awaken Brunhild. And when he awakened her, then the world was returned to spring.
1: This idea that love makes the world wake up and the trees go green, and the birds mm. sing. Again, that's a very old idea, isn't it? Love does that. It's
0: even yeah. older than Persephone. We're, we are going right back to the oldest myths of humanity. We're, we can actually link Sleeping Beauty all the way back to Ishtar, who was a, a Sumerian goddess. Um, this is the very earliest, earliest written mythologies. And in actual fact, with Ishtar, very little is written about her. We can only really see her story in hieroglyphics, in, in drawings, in statues, in, in the artefacts of a vanished civilization. But what's interesting is let's have a look at the fairy godmother idea. Now, when um, Charles Perrault wrote The Sleeping Beauty in the Wood, he had um, eight fairies. And then there were seven good ones and one evil one who was the one that cast a spell, casts a curse. Now eight is known to be the symbolic number of Ishtar. And so this didn't actually appear in the Basil story. You know, Basil wasn't really interested in old myths he was interested in entertaining right. his highly sophisticated audience with naughty tales. You know, they would have thought this idea of a, of a, a sleeping girl being raped by a passing prince as being hilariously funny, wicked, subversive, but Perrault was picking up on something older, much older than that. And then when the Grims retold it, they they changed the number to 13. Twelve good fairies.
1: And one evil one. And
0: one wicked one. And this links it back to the Norse mythologies. Now, you're automatically thinking of the Last Supper, which is what most people think mm-hmm. about when they think about the number 13. But in actual fact, it's much, much older than that. It's a, it's a story of Loki, the wicked god of the north, and he... He was not invited to a feast because there was only 12 gold plates. And so in his anger, he cursed Brynhild, who ended up in her castle surrounded by flames. And so Wilhelm Grimm, who is the one who made most of the changes to the stories, he changed the number of fairy godmothers to 13 to link it back more strongly to this ancient Norse Myth.
1: Even though it doesn't really have that connection, he sort of no. manufactured it after the effect. Exactly. Do you, do you know there is a male? Well, I am sure you know this. There is a male equivalent of Sleeping Beauty, and that's and I wrote about this in my own book about the myth of the King under the Mountain, mm. which is like you know the myth of King Arthur. For, it's one example: yes. Charlemagne and others who are said to be sleeping under a mountain somewhere, uh, with lying on a on a catafalque with I a long love beard, this story. and a shepherd wanders into the cave, falls mm-hmm. into the cave, and finds King Arthur surrounded by his knights, who say he's not dead; he, he's sleeping, and the and the Latin sign "Here lies Arthur, the once and future king," and he's awaiting the day when he will be called back to action to save England again. Mm-hmm. And that was set of Charlemagne and, and and others as well.
0: Oh, there's so many. They're, they're particularly prevalent in cultures that um, have been affected by myth from the north. Oh. I love this story. I'm so glad that. That that, that you've brought this Mm. one up. So it appears a lot in Celtic mythology, and particularly in Wales and Ireland and Scotland, you know, where the Celtic stories are the strongest. Multiple stories of uh, a shepherd or a small boy or a passing, you know, merchant, you know, getting lost in the rain, stumbling into a cave, finding the sleeping king under the mountain.
1: But, but for the men, it's the, it's mm. duty that's going to arouse them. Yes. But for the, the sleeping woman, it's love.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it?
1: I don't know what's in that, but uh, that's interesting.
0: I love the idea that, you know, often there's a horn lying next to the king, and you've got to be brave enough to pick up the horn and blow the horn to summon, you know, to awaken him and make him ride forth again.
1: Let's get back right back though mm-hmm. to that first story you said. Oh of yes, Sleeping Beauty, the one that
0: t- and then yeah, they mm-hmm. turn
1: into uh, Sun Moon and Talia. Italia. The original one where there's like this this complicated series of events that seems like very morally untidy. If that's the word, mm-hmm. for it to modernise there, where there are children and she becomes she bears them while she's asleep. What what's going on here? Why is this such a powerful story all on its own, Kate?
0: Well, the you know the idea of this sleeping goddess having two children twins, a boy and a girl, is is linked very um, much to the idea of Apollo and Artemis, and all the other you know you know brother and sister goddesses. And it makes um, Zelandine a, a type of earth goddess. You know the mother gods, and those fairy tale scholars who are interested in mythological interpretations of fairy tales love this because to them. Uh, the Sleeping Goddess is like a um, a metaphor for the human spirit. She stands in for everyone, male or female, anyone who is held in stasis, held immobilized, not yet woken to the world, not yet woken to their own sexuality because Sleeping Beauty is very much a story about uh, a sexual blossoming. And this idea, this idea of the girl being held imprisoned and then being um, awoken by her own son by becoming a mother it's very much a kind of maiden mother crone story and so some people link it right back to the earliest matriarchal mythologies this idea of uh, the movement from the virginal maiden through to the mother and then to the old woman who carries within her all the wisdom of the world,
1: she gives birth to the sun and the moon, mm. and then they wake her up. Yeah, the earth. So she's the earth. Yes. Wow, that's far out. That this is this is really deep stuff. This thing it's all, it's it's so deeply felt as well. Tell me this though, Kate. Why are these stories? so much crueler in their oldest ver- oldest versions and why do they seem to become more color- well, prettier and more benign as time goes by?
0: Well, most people nowadays uh, think that we live in a world uh, filled with darkness and violence. You know, they fear for their children, they fear for the future of our planet, they fear what may happen to us as humans you know to the human race but the truth of the matter is is the world that we live in now is a far prettier and more benign place than it has ever been before
1: that's the absolute truth yeah. right yes
0: and so if we're if we're talking about the time when many of these stories were were invented were uh, told and retold we're talking about a place that is full of human violence and seems to be full of supernatural violence. There is no such thing as antibiotics, is the simplest thing. You can cut your finger, you can prick your finger on a thorn and you can die of that wound. Many people have.
1: Childbirth is deadly.
0: Childbirth is deadly. War. Most young boys were raised to be warriors. It was more important that they were taught swordcraft than that they were taught statecraft. We're talking about a world that is seems to be ruled by mindless violence and where the world is very, very dark. And so fairy tales are um, encoded um, stories of warning and of teaching. And they're kind of like pamphlets to teach the young how to get on in the world. And so basically most fairy tales tell you if you are strong enough, if you are brave enough, if you are kind enough if you work hard enough you can change the world every time a fairy tale is altered, it's because the society around it has altered. And so as our society has grown and changed,
1: so have the fairy tales. So this is what Disney does. It turns them into stories about how you can you mm-hmm. pull yourself up by your bootstraps, it, like be an individual, yes. and, and, and through your individual efforts, realise your way through the world, which is a very American idea.
0: Disney loved um, all the rebirth fairy tales. They're his favourite ones. Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, all these stories about... Uh, a character who goes through a period of harrowing darkness, but then is reborn into a world of light. And you must remember that Walt Disney was making began to make his fairy tale movies in the ruins of the Second World War. Snow White, which is a classic rebirth story, was his first, fairy town movie and it is absolutely a story of someone who has to battle against wickedness and evil you know the whole thing about the poison apple is so so filled with meaning when you think that the Second World War was the first war to release poison gas and to use the, the this idea of, you know, killing people through, you know, gas being put through shower vents and so forth. The whole symbolism of Snow White is all about rebirth and the regaining of a new world where evil has been vanquished.
1: You know, it just occurred to me he never made a film of Hansel and Gretel, did he? No, he it's didn't. It's too dark, I suppose, for Disney, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe he could have made it if it was uh, before the Second World War. It would have... It would dark storm clouds on the horizon.
0: Now, Disney gets um, criticised a lot, and I must admit I, I have my reservations about some of his creative choices. However, if it was not for Disney, many of these stories would have been lost because the only thing that keeps fairy tales alive is the fact they are told and retold and retold. And if Disney had not retold them, then they may would have died and we would have been much the poorer for it.
1: Kate Forsyth is with me. Telling the true stories behind many of those great folk tales and fairy tales that we all grow up with. Finally, Kate, the story of Tamlin, a, a Scottish folktale. This is one that comes from Song. Just explain the story. I don't know if that many people be or certainly wouldn't be as familiar with the story of Tamlin as these other three fairy tales we've been talking about.
0: And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it because I really wanted to explore some of the stories that are not as well known but have... Uh, absolutely steeped in beauty and meaning and and all the things that fascinate me about fairy tales. Tamlin was first recorded as a ballad, as a song, um, in the Scottish borders in 1549 but we know that it had existed in various different forms much longer than that um, because you know there are references to it here and there. Um, it's a story of a girl and uh, she lives uh, in a castle in the Scottish borderlands but her her mother keeps warning her, you know, do not go to Carterhoe. There you must not go. And she says, why, mother, why must I not go to Carterhoe? And she says, because the fairy Prince Tamlin is there and he takes a price for all who trespass there. And, of course, what can the price be that a young woman would have to pay a young man? Well, in some of the sweetest stories, it's a kiss. But mm. in most of them, it's the taking of her maidenhood. So Janet goes to Cartajoe, even though she knows that she that she should not go there. She goes knowing that she must pay the price she goes willingly, and so this what we would call the the violation of an interdict The crossing of a forbidden barrier Because yeah, as
1: soon as a mother tells her not yeah. to go there We know she's going to go there, exactly. don't we? Exactly, and yes. you've got to
0: quite like Janet yeah. because of this Because, you know, to willingly go and face the danger And the magic of the mystery of the unknown She's a fascinating character
1: So this is the threshold you cross, cross This isn't is the it? threshold You step off step off the safe path and you cross the threshold As she does
0: As she does And so she goes to Carterhoe And she lies with Tamlin, And she finds herself with child so I tell this story a lot. It's one of my favourite stories to tell. And I say, um, and the summer passed and she was pale as milk and the winter came and she was round as a full moon. Mm-hmm. So in some of the stories, she goes back to Cartahoe to find Tamlin. In some of the stories, she goes because she's searching for herb so that she can rid herself of the baby. But this is not the usual story. Usually she goes back because she wants to save her child's father. Tam Lin is actually a human, a mortal man, who has been captured by the Queen of the Fairies. Now, when I say the Queen of the Fairies, most people think of pretty little sparkling things that hop around in buttercups.
1: No, I'm thinking of Titania. Yeah. Titania, is this what we're talking about, or is that an English thought? Yes.
0: I mean, you know, Titania is one name for her. Uh Sometimes she's called Mab.
1: Ah, Queen Mab, yes. Yeah,
0: in the Scottish tradition, there was the Seelie Court and the Unseelie Court. And the Unseelie Court were very dark and very dangerous, but very, very beautiful. And so the Fairy Queen is normally described as being tall and pale and beautiful, but dreadful. And every seven years, the Queen of the Fairies has to pay uh, a payment to the devil And it it must be paid in human blood. And so come that Halloween, Tam Lin will be sacrificed to the devil. And so Janet decides that she's going to save him. And the only thing that she can do to save him is that she must not fear. She must hold fast no matter what comes. And so on the night of Halloween or All Hallows Eve, a night when when the membrane between the world softens and parts, she sees Tamlin riding with the fairy queen and she seizes him in her arms and then comes a battle of witchcraft and the queen transforms Tamlin into a series of beasts Um, you know lions and bears and adders and eels anything that might hurt Janet that might rent her that might damage her but Janet and then I, I love the repetition of this phrase she says I do not fear I shall hold fast you are my one true love I shall never let you go and there's usually seven different transformations and the final one Tamlin is transferred uh, transformed into a burning coal and Janet clasps into her heart white hot burning coal she says I do not fear I shall hold fast, you are my one true love, I shall never let you go. And then she flings herself, holding the burning coal into a well which extinguishes the flame and the heat of that coal. And Tam Lin is transformed back into a man. So Janet has won. And the Queen has lost, and then the Queen says to him, If I had known I would have transformed your heart of flesh into a heart of stone, I would have transformed your living eyes into eyes of wood, so that you would never have seen that fair mortal face. And then she rides off. And Tamlin and Janet live happily ever after.
1: That's a cracker of a story. I hadn't heard that before. Mm. I like that, and I didn't know what was going to happen. I thought she was going to drown in the well, that that might be the price she pays. Because it seems like a, a lot of times in fairy tales, to be honest, women have to pay a price for getting their heart's desire all their way.
0: One of the reasons why I love this story, apart from the fact that it's fantastic to tell out loud, mm. um, but with all its little patterns and repetitions all the way through, but it's a story of a young woman who uh, is bold, who is brave. She saves her man and i love that story um it's also a fascinating one to tell because if you ever go to scotland if you ever go to a place called melrose which is a old town kind of nestled in the hills uh, it's got an old abbey it's got an iron age fort and you go down the road about 20 minutes you come to a place called um tamlin's well and this is this is said to be the place where the battle took place. But can I tell you, to actually wander down this country road and to come across one of those, it isn't a well like we imagine a well, it's a natural spring, surrounded by stones, just running over rocks. To know that this story has existed in this place for so long and is a natural part of the landscape, I find that really beautiful.
1: I love you telling me these stories, Kate. I hope you come back again before too long mm-hmm. to tell us another batch of fabulous folk tales and the true stories behind them. Thank I would you love so to. much, Kate.
0: Thank you so much.
1: I spoke with Kate in 2017. Kate Forsyth is the author of many books, including The Blue Rose, Bitter Greens, Vasilisa the Wise, and she's working on a new non fiction book with her sister, which will be released later this year. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.